Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Paul Shao, co-founder and general partner at Canvas Ventures. Canvas is one of the leading Series A firms that has invested in Zola, Thrive Global, and Roofstock. You'll learn what are the ingredients that could make for a spectacular marketplace business, the current state of the Series A, and much, much more. Without further ado, here's Paul. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Paul. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I want to start from the very beginning of your career. What was your initial attraction to technology? So I was fascinated by the possibilities of human organ replacements in high school, believe it or not. So after I got to MIT, I spent five years learning and researching how to build bile, artificial liver, and heart. And that was really a fascinating period of my life. Like, I know I love new product design and development. So, like, after Harvard Medical School and Medtronic, I was looking for a product to build and take to market. And that's how we got to Mazu Networks. So, if you can believe from artificial organ to network security, uh, not a linear path. <laughs> all that incredibly technology-driven. And Mazu, I mean, for those probably who don't know, is we wanted to help internet companies to stay up doing those denials, DDoS attacks. And, you know, we were successful doing so, raised some venture backing from Benchmark, Greylog, and Matrix. And the company eventually had a successful exit to this company called Riverbed. And so that was really, you know, from that initial attraction to technology to this really lifetime journey on the technology path. Totally. I mean, what were some of the learnings um, at Mazu Network really impacted you or um, inspired you when you think about venture capital as well as you kind of cross over to the other side as an investor? Yeah, I think it's about the quality of your team and go-to-market. Those were probably the two key learnings, I would say. Like doing Mazu, I really got to know what VCs do. And I thought that was just super cool. It's part of the reason that I, after Mazu, I, you know, cross over to the, to the venture side. As a founder, there's only so much you can learn. There's only so much you know before you start it. And so the ability to evolve and learn from folks around you are so critical. And that having the great board of directors, having good advisors are super um, at least in my experience, you know, both as a founder, builder, and as a VC now, really makes a huge difference to people you surround yourself with. What do you think about skill sets that venture capitalists maybe needs that it might have, you thought, all right, this is actually a right fit for me? Yeah, I would say, so the interesting venture 
is the fascination with technology where we started out, right? From, you know, I was just like, wow, I'm interested in artificial organ, interested in software, interested now today in marketplace. To be on the investing side gives you that flexibility, right, to explore. And frankly, it's a privilege that you meet with incredibly smart people to that have these dreams. Look, I, when I crossed over to VentureSide, I got paired up with Scott Sandell um, at NEA, and he was my Kaufman Fellowship mentor. And that turned out to be really an incredible 10 years with him at NEA. Uh, if you think back, and you know, let me sort of, you know, I gosh, I saw the beginning of Salesforce, Workday, Tableau, Coursera, 23andMe. I mean, I can go on Groupon. Even Tencent and Alibaba, and you think about it, that's like these are incredibly iconic names. But they all started with very humble beginnings. They all started with sort of a kernel of idea and passion, and it's just really a fun time, you know, in sort of watching that and be helpful. And so I, I think that that part is just a really, you know, when there's so many people coming into venture, I think many will probably agree with that, right? I mean, you're doing some of that yourself too. It's just the enthusiasm is, is hard to, you know, it's really an end of an, you know, sort of hit every time you sort of talk to people and see these things succeed. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I wanted to know, so after NEA, like how did a Canvas come together and how did you think about starting your own fund? Yeah. I mean, look, my partners have all worked at large platform firms where like the partners cover, gosh, technology, biotech, growth capital, public investing, and even private equity. And we just thought, look, for early stage investing, like a different, a better approach is the boutique firm approach that we can all be focused on very few select areas and help these visionary builders succeed in creating their own dreams as a team, right? And I think the, the, what you see is inevitable that once firms get larger, you become a capital allocator, right? It's hard to spend time on company building versus chasing deals. And as a boutique firm, and you heard it from my partner, Mike Gaffari, who was on your show before, like we can be you know, super mission-driven and don't have to chase every deal that come across the desk, right? So that fanatic passion for early stage is important. Look, as a founder, right, you, you want to know if your investor incentive matches yours, right? Is the partner here to help you succeed in extraordinary ways and be in your corner all the time? Or are you one of the 20 shots on go and as long as one succeed, he, you know, your investor does just fine, whereas it's your entire life, right? And that distinction is really important. Yeah, so it seems like, what you love, like, or part of the love investing that you really enjoy is the actual day-to-day spending time with the founders and actually being able to there be day-to-day and help the companies build. Um, I'd imagine that probably lends to you more of like a concentrated portfolio where then you can actually have more of an impact on the companies that you actually are as opposed to making maybe smaller bets into different companies. When I had Mike on, who was terrific, this was, I think... October, November 2019. And I know Canvas focuses on Series A. And he was saying how there was a Series A crunch. A lot of funds were either going very, very early, pre-seed seed, or going very, very late, more than like the growth aid. 
From thy conversation with Mike, I'd love to know up to now, has the landscape changed or what's the market for Series A currently? Is dramatically different now, Mike. To say data nigh would be an understatement. Um, gosh, Series A landscape today is high velocity, high volume, and high dollar amounts. There's no Series A crunch whatsoever now. It is really the best time for funders to raise capital uh, right now for Series A. So I'd imagine as an investor, it's a lot tougher since there's so much supply of capital in the market. Are you now making deals like faster than ever per se? Or how does that affect you and, and in terms of your process for investing? We haven't changed much. I think the pressure is on. You know, you have to make decisions fast. You know, Mike, look, what's important to us is ultimately we care about the founder, right? Like business evolve, financial numbers will change. You know, the metrics you generate today is really just part of the story. So we think we spend a lot of time, we try to, you know, spend as much time as possible, understand the founder, understand the motivation, understand her experience. And, you know, we really take that boutique approach. Like I'll give you an example, Austin, right, um, who started Luminar, had no revenue when we invested in his Series A. And look, and post-investment, we've helped him on team recruiting, capital raising, distribution, technology roadmap, and so many things. And this advantage, you know, when you partner this boutique shop, we could do that, right? And we're very proud, you know, with, you know, in six years, he's, you know, now a $6 billion public company. And gosh, um, I always forget, I think Austin was maybe 19 or 20 years old when we backed him. That tells you what is really core to what we do at Canvas, right? That, that boutique approach, the founder focus, we're always in their corner. You text us at 11 p.m. or 1 a.m., we'll get back to you, right? We're in your corner. I don't think many VCs can say that. And that really separates us from a lot of other of our peers. I'll give you an example. Yeah, Ariana Huffington, we uh, let her Series A in a company called Thrive Global, you know, B2C business. And, you know, I, I think Forbes publisher Asia, I don't think she'll mind. I mean, she was in her 60s when she started Thrive. She's certainly not 20, and she's built an incredible business in the last five years. Yeah. And so the characteristics of a founder that are sort of age agnostic. You know, I think we have sort of, as an industry, we gravitate toward the younger founders like Austin. You know, it's like the prototypical Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. But like in our portfolio, gosh, you know, between Ariana Huffington and Gary Beasley, who started a business in his 40s and a few others, we're some really incredible business that are started by founders all over the age spectrum here. Yeah, that's terrific to hear. I'm curious because I know that you invest in both enterprise businesses and consumer-facing businesses. What are some of the differences and some of the risks when you have to underwrite a consumer-facing business? Yeah, I would say, look, I think it's important to point out the two are really blurring, meaning, right, historically, you know, when you look at an enterprise, when you used to invest in enterprise business, you really focus on that central decision-maker, CIO, right, who makes most of those IT purchase decisions. But today, the business users really make a lot of those decisions themselves now, right? You know, like buying a Figma or Airtable is really no different than buying, you know, a Coursera or Netflix. So the risks are 
somewhat blurred now because you have to think about the bottoms up good market motion. You have to think about CAC, whereas classically you think about the Salesforce productivity because it's a top down sale. So on the consumer side, you know, I think the opportunity is like, how do you think about the unique value prop here, right? Like, what are the some of the core tenants of the offering that you build? And it still comes back to look, Mike. It comes back to team building. Like we have a, the saying that every company is one person sure from greatness. When the founder is capable of recruiting great people and have enough capital, you could just keep evolving to make it great. Um, and that is fairly consistent over over the years through through up and down in different cycles. I think you've also pointed out a really good point. And um, I know this is brought up a lot, consumerization of enterprise. But but I feel like most of the time it's it's brought up in terms of uh, the UI, the design of the product and how that's changed. But you made a really good point about the bottom-up sales piece and how that actually looks a lot more like a consumer company rather than your traditional drawn out enterprise sales process. It might take you, you know, a few months to close a client um, or a customer. Whereas, um, and as you say, you're very much geared towards the CIO and the CIO's needs. Where now it's more of like an a, a la carte bottoms up approach where the sales cycle is a lot quicker. I mean, it's like consumer. So I think that that's interesting as well. So true. And then on the consumer side, Mike, I'll tell you, we have you know a few of our consumer businesses like Zola, Airvet, and Roofstock. They have a B two B component on the platform now, right? Because that supplements. Uh, frankly, you know a lot of B two C businesses are a platform business, so you can supplement the consumer side of the monetization with enterprise. Um, I think it's well known now that Twitter before they reached a critical mass to turn on advertising, their enterprise data revenue business really kept the, the revenue flow coming in, right? And so for those of your founders that are thinking about B2C business, I, I won't just focus on one monetization. A lot of times what you build has a B2B component that could be leveraged. And it's actually a really nice flywheel that when you get it going, that effect kicks in nicely in this environment. Whereas in the past, you know, you have to be focused only to B2C or only do B2B. I think I would recommend not drawing that very black and white distinction. Yeah, that's a great point about this blurring. Now, when you think about the B2C approach versus the B2B approach as well, we have to think about as well focus, right? And making sure that you obviously maybe have one part of the monetization the B2C side robust maybe before you maybe expand and go a more B2B route. At what level, how should entrepreneurs be thinking about, first of all, if it is blurred in terms of which route to go in B2B versus B2C, depending on the vertical of the business, but but if it makes sense where you could actually build maybe big businesses and stratospheres, how do you make the decision on when it makes sense to start B2B or B2C and then when do you make the addition to introduce the other part to your business? Great question, Mike. So let's assume the business is B2C, right? So you start out a B2C business and the question is, do you add B2B or what do you do? I think when you start that B2C with the value prop, um, you look for the engagement of your customers or the consumers, right? Whether it's the frequency of engagement or the depth of engagement. So you 
Oh, yeah, we encourage our founders to be maniacally focused on it and not stress about monetization in the in the first three years. Yeah. And once you have that uh, tune, and then hope, and then once you can serve a very passionate, even if it's a small community of them, then that gives you the license to start explore. And on the B2B part, usually what happens is whether the supply side has kicked in or the data, you know, you know we see data as so critical competitive mode for most B2C business now that that data is usually what gives the B2C business the license to go after enterprise monetization. And oftentimes is the inbounds from these enterprises, they've figured out that you have some unique data inside that they want to leverage. And hence, um, I'll give you an example with Roofstock, right? Roofstock sort of is, a, is like the leading platform where people can buy and sell single family rental homes. So these, you know, these are homes with renters, they collect income. And, you know, shortly after they started, people realized, oh, wow, these guys have really good liquidity. And the big enterprises that are showing up and say, hey, can you just deploy these capital a billion dollars at a time on our behalf, right? And that is a prime example of that. Or AirVet, where we're serving consumers to get telemedicine, to get to vets. And more and more, like the business are coming to them and say, hey, you have this really great network of vets. Can you help us roll this out? And so you got to build that engagement first, and that will give you really the flexibility and option to go into enterprise. That makes a lot of sense. And that's also helpful in terms of if you're a consumer business, at what point it makes sense to go to enterprise. And also, you know, for those first three years, really, really dig into the actual frequency side of your business and also the return rate and also obviously pay attention to churn. Don't focus as much as the monetization side. And I had a long conversation with Mike Gaffari when he was on about this is marketplace type businesses. And there's a lot of chatter about how the new maybe business model for consumer is now consumer SaaS businesses and how that's becoming the primary business model. What do you make of the current landscape when it comes to business models? Yeah, I think I would say, look, take a quick step back and look at there are really three broad approaches when you think about monetization in consumer business, right? One is obviously selling advertising. Two is you can sell goods, services, or do sell a buy a match, you know, but that's a transaction-based model that based on a net take, right? And the third is what you just said, right? Selling subscription. Look, you said it like you know, subscriptions have a lot of attractions, but you got to figure out if the retention is strong. And if, it's, if it, otherwise, it's not that different if you can't figure out what the real LTV is. Because we've seen people easily overspend on CAC. And then it just, it's just sort of a treadmill that you can't get off of because the second you turn on marketing, the business sort of flattens, right? We see our company. So we, we don't pick sort of say oh, one out of the three we actually see many of our companies use a combination of the two. That's probably a really good balance uh, between both subscription and net take, or you know, some people do sort of net take plus some some advertising. Um, that's really you, you want to be flexible and and pick combination, not just stick on one here. What is consumer reaction to companies that that where you actually do have um, th- that combination of a Consumer SaaS businesses, but then you're also taking a take rate on 
the actual sale if it's a marketplace type business. I mean, one company that I think has this model is, is Italic, who's going to be coming on the podcast um, next month. Um, but I'm just kind of curious from your standpoint, because you're almost double dipping in some ways. Yes and no, right? I think um, when you are charging the software SaaS, oftentimes it's a workflow software that the company has provided, right? Whether it's financial software, whether it's some you know, workflow automation, and usually has a freemium tier. And if you want additional connectivity or additional features, you pay $5 you know, a month or $20 a month. So that there's a fair value exchange. And the transaction comes from if they want to transact certain things, right? Whether there's a, you know, some people layer in the fintech model, if you're transferring money or there's a lending or, hey, you're selling goods and taking the 5 to 15%, I think that's sort of fair. I mean, think Amazon, right? You and I probably both pay Amazon Prime, that's subscription, but Amazon takes Oh gosh, I mean, Amazon take cut in so many different ways. Now they take a cut of the product sale. <laughs> if you're hosting with them as AWS, they take a technology cut. And if you really want to get hired, they get advertising cut. I mean, so like Amazon is a really great place for B2C business founders to learn because they've sort of layer in different pieces that all seem to work together. And you and I don't feel like we're getting ripped out by Amazon. If anything, we're getting a lot of value out of Amazon. And so I think that's okay. If it's done sort of um, in a forced way, obviously then you feel like double dipping, but it's really, they're describing different parts of the components of the business that you're delivering to your target users. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great analogy for that. For you to invest in, what has to be exciting about the founder? Let's also dive in a little bit on your due diligence process. Like I said before, we care a lot about the founder, right? As Series A, uh, is ultimately still a storytelling exercise. Like certain shops, right? They will invest, they will tell you, you know, others, VC economy, they will tell, oh, we invest in 1 million net revenue ARR or some other metrics. We don't have those hard numbers. We love talking to customers, right? They're, you know, even if they're alpha customers. And so how we look at it is when you look at this business and look at this opportunity, is whether, you know, it's the founder has the ability, like, are you excited about the future that the founder is painting, right? And that believing this company will be meaningful. That's a, that's a gut check, right? And that this founder will idea has a decent shot at attracting talent to build that vision and get us there. That is what due diligence is about, right? Because, you know, we all being successful founders ourselves, you know, we're like accomplished builders, you know, own right, so a little bragging here. And so we've learned that being a founder is both exciting and lonely at the same time, Mike. You know, how you evolve, how you stay resourceful, how you stay competitive, how you stay balanced. Um, we've just seen great founders build business that shouldn't have succeeded, right? And we've seen great ideas flop because of founder. And so that part, maybe the short answer to your question is a really important question is, we're incredibly founder-centric in our due diligence. How do you think about TAM? I've had on, for example, like Eric Paley before, and he was saying how investors underwrite notorious for getting TAM wrong. And he brought up the example of when Fitbit first started out, like what was the market for wearables, right? It was extremely small. And so 
How do you perceive and kind of measure on the more the metric side, analytical side of, is this going to be a big market? Eric's a good friend. Uh, like Eric, we don't think about TAM. <laughs> how do you do that, right? <laughs> well, my answer is, how do you do TAM analysis? I mean, that's ridiculous to just try to do TAM analysis at because many of these great things, you know, Nina, you know, and my my partner, Nina, who says I'm marketing was with Coinbase and Airbnb. If you look at Airbnb and Coinbase early on, how do you do ten for those businesses? Right, a lot of these great iconic names, um, they look like toys. They look like they were serving a very very niche market, um, and so it's not about that. It's really about look. I, I think we've sort of you know, especially for B two C. We've come a long way from the classic mass market, mass product, mass distribution to very hyper-focused, serving a passionate community really well. I think those look like niche business, but in fact, they are huge, large business in the making. We're going to see so many of those coming. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I'm so glad you said that. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of my conversation with Mike Duda when he invested in Peloton. He was like, well, how do you measure the TAM for Peloton back in the day? What are specific verticals that you're really thinking about in terms of disruption? Or is there a technological advancement that's waiting to happen that you're particularly excited about? To do what we do, right? Like we said, you know, we're boutique, we're in the corner, we focus. The one thing we try to do really well is go to market. And so to do that well, you, you know, it's an ecosystem of really great advisors, builders, executives that we can recruit. And so if sort of to do so, we are fairly focused. And so where we're excited right now is fintech, digital health, and marketplace across both B2C and B2B. And the innovations you see there, one important one is data and machine learning. The modern day B2C companies are really data companies. Think about the recommendation you and I get from Netflix or Amazon Zola. I mean, these are very one-to-one high-position targeting or the route automation that DoorDash or Uber does with the customer calls. So how you, the machine learning is so readily available. And so that technology will propel a lot of really interesting B2C business going forward as well. So I'm glad you brought up all three of these of these areas. I mean, before I was actually talking with Ben Savage at uh, Clock Tower Ventures, and uh, who I know focuses purely on fintech. We spoke about how consumer businesses all kind of lead to fintech. This is what's been floating around online. I asked him this question, but I'm curious on your thought. What is the biggest misconception when it comes to fintech as it relates to consumer? I'll share Ben's answer after. Before Chime, before these businesses come about, People didn't think you could build these financial services organizations because the big financial companies are just so dominant. As it turned out, it's not quite true, right? And so the misconception back then was fintech was small. Like going back to your temp, right? And that turned out fintech is massive, right? Look at how many $10 billion, $100 billion companies have created in the last 10 years. So I think if anything, the misconception is that you could actually build, yeah, I don't know if it's a misconception. Like I think there's just so much enthusiasm in building all kinds of different steps into that entire financial fintech value chain. And so hence the sort of the proliferation of startups in the space, because now everyone's solving one particular problem there. 
Um, I also wanted to hear what your take was of now crossover funds coming into the private capital markets, especially like I know Tiger Global has been such a hot topic. And what are your thoughts about Tiger and maybe some of these other funds that are coming into early stage investing? Well, I think they have brought a lot of different discipline and practice, right? And certainly competition into the space, right? No question, right? There's probably an underappreciation from, gosh, five, 10 years ago on the multiple people investors will pay. I mean, today you could be a $2 million ARR business and be value at a billion. And right, that 10 years ago, probably a $30 million AR business was priced at 300 or 450 million 10 years ago. Today, that business is easily $1.5 billion. So, and it's because there's so many more 30 billion to 100 billion class tech businesses and that the largest technology companies are worth a trillion today. So I think we just have collectively underappreciated how big the technology companies can become. So now everyone forward priced the upside of 10 billions into the current price. And hence, you see more crossover and more folks jumping in and making these decisions faster. And with, you know, so it's both rational and irrational at the same time. I'm so glad you brought that up because when you do get a unicorn, I mean, it's still obviously a huge event, but there's so many unicorns now. Right. And there's, I mean, it seems like there's more unicorns now than there were 10 years ago of companies raising Series A's. As an investor, I mean, what is your expectation then from your investors? Since, and you pointed to a really good example about how I think you said like a 300 or a $30 million AR company now might be valued at like 1.5 billion. What's your expectation now when you're actually investing in companies? So we, let's say we get involved with business that's zero revenue or 2 million, whatever the entry price. We ultimately think about how to help that founder to turn it into a hundred plus million revenue business. Because if we can do them, then the rest will take care of itself. And, and we've just done that again and again, right? Like after we partner with them, all the things we do, right? As, as a boutique firm that you help them recruit team, you help them refine the product market strategy. And when you get to that hundred million revenue, whatever the multiple is, I think the founders is happy. Everyone else on the cap cap table is happy as well. And so we don't think about what the ultimate outcome has to be. You know, sometimes they get to 30 billion, sometimes they get to 300 million. And I think we, you know, being in both, and I think both are fine. That's really helpful because when I talk to investors sometime, like the goal they say is, is looking at the evaluation, right? And what I really appreciate about how you think about it is, no, no, no. The goal is to get how can we make this into a $100 million ARR business, right? And then the rest kind of take care of itself. So that's that's really helpful and also refreshing. That's sort of a proxy for having built a durable business that you've delivered, you know, we're mission-driven, right? At the end of the day, have we built something that is making the world a better place and that people are benefiting, that people are thriving based on the thing that uh, the founder has built? And we just you know, very focused on it. And so that part is the fun part of what we do. What is your biggest learning or, or maybe a couple of biggest learnings from, um, from this COVID period? The world is incredibly resilient. Um, I, it's probably a bad joke, but I don't think any terrorist organization could have planned an attack better than COVID. 
And yeah, we survive and thrive during this period. It gives me tremendous hope, right? It was hard for everyone for sure, but I think we're proving to ourselves that we're very resilient and many great things have happened during this period. I certainly agree based off of uh, of resiliency. Did you have preconceived notions before COVID when it came to building a company that, for example, it all should be in person, it should not be uh, remote first? Did you have those thinkings and has COVID at all maybe changed how you think about remote work? What is the right approach to um, to building companies? Before COVID, we started seeing many of our successful companies have remote teams. I think during COVID, that has only accelerated for sure. We're seeing more teams going fully distributed. I really think fundamentally startups just getting very highly global. You think about it, like knowledge is already distributed, right? Like through you know, your podcast, you know, all the other medium, Coursera, talents distributed, people are moving to different cities and customers are really reachable from everywhere. So I think it's only natural that, you know, remote is staying, whether it's hybrid or not, because I think we headed into a very global business here for both the startup and venture community. I read that one of your passions is really thinking about and viewing like the, the data economy. How do you describe the data economy and what are some of the ways it could transform B2C businesses? I think we touched upon it briefly, right? Like data is like oxygen to B2C um, because you can derive all these precision, whether it's recommendation, whether it's your internal decision-making and that data economy really will allow the B2C business to thrive in ways that and scale uh, at a speed that wasn't possible before. And so it's almost table stake. Like you, you got to build that and leverage the machine learning of what's possible. And why wouldn't you do it? So I think that data economies, that data strategy, whether it's share, collaboration, everything else in between really is important for you know, a lot of B2C founders focus on brand, focus on influencers, and they often overlook the importance of data behind the scene and are oftentimes a bit late on building that data stack. And for a B2C business, we encourage them to have that phone almost day one. Yeah, how I think about it as well is if you're able to build a data stack from the very beginning, then you're able to maybe refine your product and refine the features. And so you can actually make your product a lot more competitive and actually be an advantage in the long term because you're iterating based off of customer feedback. You're iterating based off of, um, okay, which part of the product do they actually use and which part of the product maybe they don't use. Maybe there might be a feature or two that they actually don't use. And same with distribution, right? How do you reach them, right? How do you, because you're better at it than your CAC is lower, right? And how do you drive engagement, right? How do you, even in service calls, which customers should you actually be nice to and which customers maybe you don't care? All of those things are informed by data and not take a broad sort of brush approach to sort of working with your customers. Well, how do you think about distribution, especially at the Series A? What does product market fit look like to you or, or could feel like to you as it relates to a consumer-facing business? I know that the term community gets thrown out a lot out there. I mean, how do you think about 
you know, organic versus paid acquisition for users? We tried our best to look for whether they're really serving a small community that talk to each other, like a local community. I learned this from a friend, uh, Marion, who sort of run that side of business for Yelp. And it was really a way to, how do you think about local community? And in the internet, like, you know, I think about Zola, which is targeting the MBA crowd first, or in Rustock was targeting that sort of secondary markets and drive liquidity there. So I think it's about staying, uh, how do you find that local small group that are truly passionate about what you provide and can add value to it? Um, and from there, you leverage the, the sort of the pay acquisition to accelerate and propel, right? But before so, you really want, you want to juice it a bit for sure because you need to kick that flywheel going. But you're looking for that community that already want to interact with you and want to interact with each other. So I so once you find your wedge or find your initial entry point into the market, you then how I'm understanding from what you're saying is that you focus on the retention and seeing if people are so excited to actually be able to retain them over and over again to use your product. And then maybe you might shift into adjacent markets, but really focus, have that focus be on the actual retention side. Is that roughly right? Yeah, and referrals. People tell you about whatever the latest cool thing that people tell you, whether it's, you know, Superhuman had that, Airtable had that, right? And, you know, I think about, you know, our own portfolio, Airva has that right now, where, and that referral kicks in nicely and you can buy that. And that comes from sort of building that delight for your customers. Yeah, I love that. And of course, that, of course, then extends into organic growth. What is one thing that you would change about venture capital? Oh, <laughs> it's self-serving. Fewer competitors, please. <laughs> What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Mm, I think professionally, a good friend, um, Farouk, um, gave me a copy of Sir Michael Moore's book called A Little Kingdom that he wrote back in 1984. I couldn't pull it down. It has had a profound impact on me. I think on the personal side, I probably would recommend Angela Duckworth's book on grit, um, an immigrant. And I just resonate with so many things that she described in the book. I love that. We'll certainly add those to the uh, newsletter. They both sound really fascinating. I don't think that anyone else has mentioned these books. So you are so original, Paul. Thank you, Mike. That's a compliment. Oh, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. My final question for you is, what's the biggest piece of advice that you've received that's been particularly helpful, you think, for founders? Be resourceful and recruit well. Being resourceful is such an important trait. Because, you know, you hit walls all the time. How do you find ways to climb over the wall, walk around it, or walk away? And just figuring out how to get through it is so important. And that's probably you know, the best trade that one advice that I've received myself. That's great. And I think also, I think, you know, when you actually send out your quarterly reports um, or your monthly updates, rely on your investors, right? Be resources, push your investors for uh, to also work with you. Yeah. To your investors as people working for you, right? That's an important distinction there. Exactly. Well, Paul, this has been so much fun. Thanks so much for the conversation. Oh my God. Thank you for having me on. That was a ton of fun. Thank you, Mike. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Paul. You can follow him at Paul underscore Shao, 
on Twitter. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 